Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 93, New Earth. This episode will contain part two of the ongoing modular debate between my friend Mike Felker of the Apologetic Front uh, and Jehovah's Witness Fred Torres on the eternal destiny of uh, Christians in the New Covenant. Uh, We'll get to all that in a second, uh, but first I just wanted to announce that uh, in two days, uh, almost exactly from now, I'll be recording a somewhat informal uh, brief debate between Steve Gregg and Dr. Michael Brown on the future of Israel. Uh, Originally, their debate proposition was going to be Israel, whether the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or as a body politic, is no longer uniquely chosen by God and no longer holds a special status in God's economy. That was the resolution that was originally agreed upon between Dr. Michael Brown and another friend of mine, Uh, but that friend of mine had to cancel for personal reasons, and Steve Gregg has graciously agreed to step in in his place. And and since he joined in, um, we've come to an agreement on a slightly different thesis, or maybe not so slightly. Now the debate thesis is going to be, there are no biblical promises awaiting fulfillment in the nation or ethnic descendants of Israel. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that. Again, it's being recorded in a couple of days, and there's going to be a portion of it where I'm going to have an opportunity to ask them a few questions, kind of like I've been doing in most of the debates here uh, on my show. Um, So you've got two days. Please get me (laughs) your questions if you have them for either Steve, uh, who will be uh, affirming that proposition. So Steve Gregg will be affirming that there are no biblical promises awaiting fulfillment in the nation or ethnic descendants of Israel, whereas Dr. Michael Brown will be uh, denying that statement. Um, I share his view that there are, in fact, biblical promises awaiting fulfillment in the nation or ethnic descendants of Israel. So if you have questions for either Steve Gregg or for Dr. Michael Brown, send them my way at, at uh, theapologetics at hotmail.com and uh, I'll find uh, what I think are the best questions that I can pose to them in the limited amount of time that we have. Uh, so I look forward to those questions. Also, this debate that you're listening to, uh, to in this episode today, part two of the debate um, between Fred Torres and Mike Felker, I still need your questions for them as well. Um, in the future, uh, near future, I'll publish part three after I've had an opportunity to um, pose your questions to them. Uh, as it stands right now, I only have a few questions. Uh, and, and it's understandable because the, the debate topic is a little bit unique. Uh, if you recall from part one, uh, Fred Torres was affirming the, uh, was affirming the proposition all Christians in the New Covenant will live forever in heaven with Christ, uh, whereas Mike Felker uh, denied that uh, resolution. You see, Fred Torres and Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there are sort of two classes of Christians, some of which are part of the New Covenant and others which are not. Those that are part of the New Covenant will uh, reside forever in heaven with Christ, whereas uh, those Christians who are not a part of the New Covenant will live forever on paradise earth, uh, where Christ is not. Uh, in affirming that statement, Fred Torres, is in, in, in his opening statement, made the argument that uh, Jesus, uh, his the glory that he had before his incarnation was uh, was heavenly, it was in heaven, and that was the glory to which he returned after his ascension, uh, and he will remain a so-called spirit being uh, for eternity, 
and uh, will live forever in heaven there. And he also made the argument that the uh, inheritance that is laid up for the saints is described as one being reserved in heaven. Mike Felker, in his opening statement, uh, argued that, um, that all spiritual descendants of Abraham will inherit the earth. He argued that, uh, um, that Jesus will return bodily to earth. And he argued that all Christians are part of a new covenant. Uh, and then they had their uh, rebuttals. And then in this episode, I had an hour to, uh, to let them cross-examine one another. The way that we did this was uh, each of them had prepared seven questions for one another. If I, uh, yeah, seven questions. They had one minute to ask uh, the question of the other person. That person had two minutes to give their answer. And then the person who asked the question had one minute to, uh, to follow up. And they, uh, they didn't alternate back and forth. Um, one of them posed the question, all seven questions to the other person, and then they switched, uh, and, and the order was reversed. So that's what you're going to listen to today. I hope that that gives you further information to help you craft your questions that I hope that you'll send to me so that I can pose it to them in listener Q&A in the next section. But before we move into uh, the, that cross-examination, I want to go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation, which is for Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason. This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious, and uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. The Standard Reason Radio program is live on the air every Sunday from 2 to 5 p.m. Pacific Time on 740 a.m. KBRT. Uh, I've also got a link in the show notes to where you can listen online. Um, I really enjoy Greg's show. He spends uh, the first... 15 minutes or so of each of the three hours that his show airs, uh, giving a brief monologue where he'll speak on a relevant topic of late. Uh, and then he takes phone calls. I've called, called into the show several times. Uh, he is very respectful to his guests. He's humble. Uh, he, he and I don't agree on everything, um, some issues more serious than others. But I appreciate the careful thought that he gives the subjects that he discusses, and I appreciate that he is, uh, that he is encouraging Christians uh, to be careful thinking. Like he said in, that, um, in the promo that I just played, uh, you know, feelings are what make life delicious, but careful, uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. And, and I think um, that's a message that we all uh, should be uh, trying to pass on to our fellow believers. So anyway, I would encourage you to check out Stand to Reason. You can also check them out at str.org. And with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into this part two of the debate with cross-examination between Mike Felker and Fred Torres. Okay, now we move into the cross-examination period. Um, 
because of uh, the modular format that we've been following, we've agreed to a cross-examination uh, format as follows. Uh, first, the negative, um, namely Mike, will have uh, 28 minutes, basically, to cross-examine um, Fred, who is affirming today's debate proposition. Uh, it will consist of seven questions. Um, Mike, for each question, Mike will have one minute to read it. Fred will have two minutes to respond, and then Mike will have one minute to follow up, and then we'll move on to the second question and so forth. And when that 28 minutes is over, then uh, uh, then we'll reverse roles, and the process will follow in the same way. So, Mike, if you're ready to begin, uh, as soon as you begin asking your first question, I'll start your timer, and we'll go from there. Okay, um... Fred, uh, in my opening statement, I provided a stream of arguments to demonstrate that the eternal dwelling place for New Covenant Christians is not heaven, but earth. And I began with uh, Genesis chapter two, 22, verse uh, 17, whereby Abraham's seed was said to possess the gates of their enemies and bless all the nations of the earth. And Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 8, is clear in interpreting these promises to apply to Abraham's spiritual seed. Furthermore, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, tells us who these spiritual seed are. That is, they are those who belong to Christ. And in fulfillment of these promises, Romans 4, 13 informs us that both Abraham and his seed will inherit or be heirs of the world. However, it is your position that Abraham's seed will live in heaven forever rather than on earth. Please provide an interpretation for your position in light of these verses, in particular, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Okay, well, well thank you for the question, Mike. Uh, well, first, I, I, I think it bears pointing out that, that Abraham is, is not uh, a New Covenant Christian. And so the, the, um, the specific promises of, of the New Covenant would not apply to, uh, to Abraham. Um, and um, Jesus is, is the primary uh, seed, of, of uh, or the primary member of Abraham's uh, spiritual seed. And I believe that, um, as you know, that uh, in the Bible and uh, passages such as Ephesians one twenty, Ephesians two six, uh, that uh, Christ and the uh, and the church, are, and the members of the church are uh, resurrected to heaven, and that is exclusive to. Those that are in the new, that receive the new birth, as per First um, Peter uh, chapter chapter one verse three and four. And I also believe, in addition to that, that uh, that that particular um, group uh, is in a special covenant uh, with Jesus Christ, uh, and that's uh, expressed in Luke twenty two twenty nine. So uh, Abraham's spiritual seed uh, inherits the the uh, the world; they they inherit the earth. In the sense that they rule over it, they they uh, they own it, along with Jesus Christ. And so, um, right, your argument assumes that that inheriting the land always means dwelling on it, when it could also mean they they simply own it. And so, um, in, in that sense, uh, the um, New Covenant Christians inherit uh, heaven. And since Abraham is not in a New Covenant Christian, he does not inherit heaven. Uh, he inherits um, the earth and um, in, the, in, the, in the way that you believe in, in, the, in the common sense that, that you argue um, uh, and um, the, that's two minutes okay thank you mm -hmm. 
Well, thanks, Fred, uh, for the answer. I would say uh, there's a couple of problems uh, that I, I see with that answer. Uh, for one, in, in Romans uh, 4.13, um, well, let me first say that it's not my position that Abraham himself, as a historical figure, is in the New Covenant. So I want, I want to make that clear. Uh, but second of all, um, Romans 4.13 says Abraham and his and his descendants, or it says Abraham or to his descendants. So that's referring to both of them that he would be heir of the world or inherit the world. So there's really no way uh, contextually or exegetically uh, to really differentiate between Abraham or his descendants as far as uh, where they will be, um, because that's the fulfillment of the land promise, and that's fulfilled uh, through both Abraham and his seed. Okay, uh, Mike, go ahead and uh, read your second question. Fred, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, teaches us that the gentle will inherit the earth. I would argue that this would include New Covenant Christians, since verses 3 and 10 also has these ones inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Please explain why these verses would not be applied to New Covenant Christians and consequently deny the debate proposition. Well, we, we don't disagree. Um... And it really ties into to the previous question. Uh, see, again, um, I argue that Matthew 5, 5 not only includes uh, New Covenant Christians, but includes Jesus himself. Um, and as I've already explained, they inherit the earth in fulfillment of the promise uh, in, because they literally inherit the earth. They will own it along with Jesus, uh, with Jesus Christ. So, uh, uh, you know, as part of that kingdom covenant. And so, uh, you know, consequently, Matthew 5, 5, uh, doesn't speak to the, um, destination of, uh, Jesus and the new, uh, Christians, new covenant Christians, but rather what they own or what they inherit. And, um, you know, this is a belief that's common amongst, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, perhaps other folks as well, and it can be verified in our publications. Um, and, and so since it doesn't speak to the eternal dwelling place of Jesus and the, New Covenant Christians, it doesn't deny the debate proposition. Well, thank you. Um, problem I see here is a bit of an inconsistency, because if you look in um, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's other places um, in, in, in that same chapter, uh, in verse 10, it says, For theirs is the king, kingdom of heaven again. So I think we have every reason to believe contextually that this is referring to their eternal dwelling. So I don't think we could deny that where they're going to go is the kingdom of heaven. That's the location. That's what they're going to inherit. So I would say it's um, inconsistent to say by inheriting the earth, that doesn't mean they're going to live on the earth. Well, consequently, would that mean that uh, they're not going to live in the kingdom of heaven since it says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? So that's what I, I would say in uh, response to that. Okay, thank you. Uh, now your third question. Uh, Fred, in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, it tells us that heaven must receive Christ until the period of restoration of all things. This means that when this period of restoration is over, Christ will no longer be in heaven, which consequently means that he will be on the earth. Please provide your interpretation of this verse and how it would not deny the debate proposition in demonstrating that Christ will leave heaven. 
Okay, well, um, I don't really deny that, that Christ leaves heaven. Um, Acts 3.20, the immediate context, uh, clearly says that God sends Jesus forth. Uh, and um, I believe this is a fulfillment of prophecy, you know, that uh, kingdom of God's, uh, the, God's kingdom is fulfilled in, in, in Psalm, for example, Psalm uh, 110 verses 1 through 4, uh, where God, you know, tells uh, the son, you know, to, to sit at his right hand until he places his enemies as a footstool. And uh, I believe it also says that he sends his his rod of his strength out of Zion. So I, I think it's just a fulfillment of prophecy. And so I, the way I see it, it, you know, heaven receives Christ until the restoration because God sends Jesus to destroy his enemies before the restoration. Uh, and since it will not take uh, eternity for uh, Jesus to destroy God's enemies, Jesus will not be on earth for eternity. Well, uh, what I see in the text is that heaven must receive him until this happens. And so I'm, I'm okay with talking about, you know, fulfillment of prophecy. And I, I think I would agree uh, to some extent. Um, well, I'd say to a lot of an extent uh, on, on that particular point. But um, just the fact that it says heaven must receive him until X, Y, and Z happens, that, that means that he's not going to be in heaven any longer. But um, I, I would say maybe just for clarity's sake, and, and maybe you could address this, um, uh, if you would, maybe in, in your re- rebuttal, because I would say um, this would be a problem with your position insofar as providing clarity on what exactly it means uh, when you say that Christ leaves heaven, because I can clearly explain what that means. He actually does. Uh, leave heaven and come to earth, and I think that's what Acts uh, chapter three verse twenty one is explicitly teaching. Okay, Mike, your question number four. Okay, Fred, in uh, Acts chapter one verse eleven, Jesus is said to come back in the same way as the disciples watched him go into heaven. Since the disciples watched Jesus physically and visibly ascend into heaven, then he must physically and visibly descend from heaven. Please explain how this verse is consistent with the debate proposition whereby Jesus will remain forever in heaven as an invisible spirit being. Right. Well, again, the immediate context, um, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, uh, actually says that Jesus uh, was was not visible after he was lifted up. Uh, A cloud obstructed the view um, of the apostles. Um, And uh, Revelation 1-7 says that Jesus returns with the clouds. Uh, but it also says that every eye will see him. So uh, I argue that Jesus will be seen with the eye of discernment and not necessarily with physical eyes. And um, Luke 16, uh, 16.20 expressly says that the kingdom does not come with, with striking observableness. Um, so Jesus does not, does not return visibly. Uh, and so even the apostles asked for a, for a sign. Uh, right of the the parousia and the subsequent uh, comment on the uh, the presence and a, a coming, and so and again the Bible expressly also says that Jesus is a spirit, and of course spirits live in heaven, humans live on earth, and uh, Acts one eleven is also consistent with a proposition that Jesus remains in heaven as an invisible spirit because that does not rule out um, temporary physical manifestations. Well, where I see that as problematic is that uh, your explanation of um, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it confuses manner with result. And the manner 
of Jesus' ascent was not disappearing from view. Rather, um, the result of Jesus' ascent was disappearing uh, from view. So the actual manner of Jesus' ascent, that was visible and bodily. That was the manner in which he did so. And I, and I think that's um, uh, what is being described here in Acts. And so when you talk about also Jesus uh, you know, being a spirit and whatnot, that's that's something I guess we could discuss on those uh, relevant texts uh, and whatnot. Uh, but I think what we have here is an exact parallel. What the, what the disciples saw happen as far as Jesus ascending into heaven, we're going to have the same manner um, when Jesus returns. Okay, uh, Mike, your question number five. Hey, Fred, in my opening I mentioned several texts that I believe are uh, difficult to explain given your view, namely... Uh, that Christ and New Covenant Christians will remain in heaven forever as invisible spirits. These texts include Matthew 26, 29, Luke 14, 15, Luke 22, 16 through 18, and Luke 22, verses 29 through 30. And collectively, all of these texts have Jesus inviting Christians to eat bread and drink wine at his table in the kingdom. How is it that Jesus and New Covenant Christians eat bread and drink wine in heaven as invisible spirits. Well, um, in, in Revelation 19, 9, um, uh, the uh, evening meal uh, is said to occur during the marriage of the Lamb. And um, that's a metaphorical reference uh, between uh, or for the relationship between Christ and Christians. Well, I, I don't see where that would be a metaf- metaphorical insofar as uh, what Jesus was describing as, as a parallel um, in, in the passage, passages I mentioned in both uh, Luke and Matthew. Um, because when we talk about the Lord's Supper, uh, we, don't, we, just, we do describe that as metaphorical. This, th- these, are, these are symbols. These mean Jesus' uh, flesh and blood. But yet we still partake. Uh, of those elements, and Jesus is saying that you're going to eat this at his table in the kingdom of heaven. So, um, to be honest, I think that kind of begs the question, because uh, Revelation 19.9, though there, of course, are metaphorical elements to that, uh, that doesn't negate the fact uh, that Jesus is talking about physical and tangible things, just like when he uh, gave the administration uh, for the Lord's Supper. All right. Uh, Mike, your question number six. Uh, Fred, in your rebuttal, you raise uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, as evidence that new covenant Christians will go to heaven. However, Hebrews eleven sixteen has the old covenant saints as being recipients of the heavenly city that is being prepared for them. Is this heavenly city in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, in the same location as the heavenly places mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6? If not, then on what exegetical grounds would you differentiate the two? And if so, then is it your view that the old covenant saints will be in heaven? Or, if there's a third option, please provide your explanation of these two verses. Well, once again, looking at the immediate context in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, it points to uh, what we call heaven, that, that space that uh, is uh, where God is at, where Jesus was resurrected to uh, at God's right hand. So that points to heaven. So, And strictly speaking, the, the heavenly city uh, does not, in my view, represent a location in the same way 
perhaps that the bride represents a woman. Now, the city represents those that, that uh, per se, that, that occupy the space in heaven as a group. Um, that you know they they occupy that metaphysical space in heaven. It doesn't refer to the space itself, um, and so they are they refer to individually in Ephesians two six, um, as as you pointed out. So I contend that the heavenly city or the New Jerusalem, other references to it, represent God's kingdom um, uh, under Jesus Christ, right? With the, the apostles as the figurative foundation. The Bible uses that language, First Corinthians chapter three verse ten eleven. And uh, since the old covenant saints are not new covenant Christians, they are not in the kingdom covenant, as I, as I pointed out. And so uh, the old, old covenant saints receive the heavenly city because, right, they're justified on the basis of, you know, on, on their faith in the one that would be, you know, they would come from heaven. So, and, you know, again, you and I agree that the old covenant saints live on earth. So I don't see a lot of uh, disagreement there. Well, that's a, a really interesting response, and I really do appreciate that because I've been for quite a while trying to, trying to find out uh, what the Jehovah's Witnesses' uh, official position currently is um, on Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 16. And um, to some extent, and I don't know how far that extent will go um, because I know we don't agree on the idea of location, uh, but uh, I, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong in, in representing you uh, on, on your uh, rebuttal, but uh, it seems like you said that uh, this does not necessarily specify the location in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, if I understood you correctly. And I would, uh, to some extent, agree with that, uh, because heavenly doesn't um, tell you exactly where they're located. That tells you what the source and origin of that location is. So in other words, um, in, uh, back in Hebrews, uh, I think it's in uh, chapter 6, where it speaks of uh, those, those ones are partaking of the heavenly gift. Uh, that doesn't mean they have to go to heaven to experience that. Uh, they experience that on earth. Okay, and your final question. Uh, Fred, in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, the author explains that the inheritance is reserved in heaven. And Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, informs us that Jesus is coming and will bring his reward with him. Uh, please provide your interpretation of these two texts and how it can be defended in light of the debate proposition. Well, my, my explanation is, is uh, that uh, Jesus received, received his, uh, his reward. He received his resurrection, uh, right, as he, uh, he, and he was resurrected to heaven. And so Jesus' inheritance, um, his, his life is in heaven. Uh, Christians receive the same reward as, as Christ. And so the resurrection of the new covenant Christians, right, occurs when, when Jesus returns. Um, and that's what, uh, I believe Revelation 22, 12 means. Um, and of course, I, I believe that, uh, the, just the, the notion, the, the nature of, of an inheritance is that it's not temporary, it's, it's permanent. Uh, consequently, I, I believe that Jesus Christ and New Covenant Christians live with God forever in heaven. So, uh, again, that's, that's, uh, my understanding of, of, uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, 3 and 4 and, and Revelations 22, 12. Uh, thanks, Fred. Um, I, I, I think that kind of begs the question here a little bit because um, one of the arguments you brought up was First uh, Peter chapter one uh, verses three through four, which talks about uh, a heavenly inheritance. And uh, I guess uh, your view would say that uh, this refutes um, my view. Uh, 
Um, but I, I don't think that's the case because I think Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, uh, very adequate, adequately explains that because that heavenly inheritance is the reward, and that's what Jesus brings with him. And I think that, uh, you know, combined collectively with the other texts I raised, Acts chapter 3, verse 21, in Acts chapter uh, 1, verses 9 through 11, I think that collectively and adequately uh, provides an explanation of how Jesus can bring that heavenly inheritance to earth for New Covenant Christians. All right. Uh, so now we will switch roles with Fred asking Mike questions. Uh, again, Fred will have one quick minute to ask his question. Mike will have two minutes to respond, and Fred will have one minute to follow up. So, Fred, whenever you're ready, you can ask your first question to Mike. Sure, thank you, Chris. Uh, Mike, uh, this is more of a procedural uh, question per se. Uh, just for the record, uh, you, you believe it is acceptable to postulate um, an affirmative position uh, when you're denying the affirmative in a debate, when uh, even when your position is not reflected in the debate proposition. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I, I do believe that is correct, and I'll, I'll use a simple illustration to demonstrate uh, let's say the debate proposition was, quote, Jesus is eternally and ontologically equal with the Father, unquote. Now, I would be taking the affirmative and uh, you would be taking the negative since, you know, you're a Jehovah's Witness. And as the negative, uh, one way for you to deny the debate proposition would be to present a positive case in demonstrating that Jesus is a created being. And if you could find even one text that explicitly refers to Jesus as a created being, uh, then you would have to present this evidence as a positive case. Now, is there anything wrong in the debate proposition? Um, I'm sorry, is there anything in the debate proposition about Jesus being a created thing? Well, not explicitly, there's not. But the whole point in denying the debate proposition in this case would be to show an exception to the proposition. And by presenting texts which uh, display Jesus as a created being, you will have presented a positive case and likewise denied uh, the debate proposition. And uh, similarly, uh, if I can show even one example of New Covenant Christians living on the earth for all eternity, uh, then I will have successfully denied the debate proposition, uh, which I believe I have done. Um, but I've yet to see how uh, this would not be a proper way to argue, given our uh, debate proposition. Well, uh, it's not that it would be improper. Um, it, again, it's more of a procedural question, um, considering the fact that, that this is a timed um, uh, discussion, and and uh, I don't believe it's my burden to deny uh, an, uh, an affirmative position. Uh, you end up with... with um, with two affirmative positions, and I, I don't believe that's reflected in the uh, debate proposition. Um, but I don't have a problem with with a discussion itself. It's just uh, again it's more of a procedural question. Okay, Fred, your second question. Mike, um, is it not true that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, do not deny that Abraham's spiritual seed will be heirs to the world? And that Jesus returns to the earth with the promised inheritance, albeit in a different way than you. Well, it's not that I'm saying that Jehovah's Witnesses uh, deny these things per se. It's that I, I don't believe uh, their position is consistent 
uh, with what the scriptures say uh, concerning this topic. And uh, regarding Abraham's spiritual seed, I find it problematic to assert that the land promise starting in Genesis uh, and ending in Romans chapter uh, 4.13, and, and there's several other places, uh, those are fulfilled um, by these ones living forever in heaven, according to your view, uh, but they still possess the earth in some form or fashion. Excuse me. And I find this uh, interpretation interesting in light of how uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will argue against some evangelicals uh, who believe that no one will be living on earth for eternity. Uh, those these, though these same evangelicals admit uh, that scripture says that earth will belong to them. In fact, that's how, that's precisely how I argued, uh, before taking my current position. Uh, but when we go back to the land promises in, uh, Genesis chapter 13, 15, and 17 and elsewhere, no one would argue that the land promises would find their initial fulfillment by the recipients not living in the land itself. Instead, it would be fulfilled by them living on the land. But when we turn to Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 13, the land promise is the entire world for both Abraham and his spiritual seed. And it would be nothing uh, short of eisegetical, in my opinion, uh, to assert that Abraham will have a, a different eternal dwelling place than his seed, when in fact the same promise is for both of them. Uh, but more importantly, if, if the original land promises uh, were for the uh, recipients to live on that land, then its fulfillment in Romans 4.13 must mean something very similar. And as far as Jesus returning to earth with a promised inheritance, it's not just that I find your interpretation different, as you put it. Um, that's my time. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, all I was asking is uh, if it's true <laughs> that that. Jehovah's Witnesses believe uh, very similarly to you do, uh, to what you do, uh, Mike. In fact, probably closer to, and as you pointed out, to uh, what other evangelicals um, believe in, re in in this regard. So I'm just pointing out uh, the fact that that um, we do account for for these uh, teachings in a way that I believe to be consistent. Okay, Fred. Uh, question number three. Mike, uh, do, do you stand by your argument uh, in your second contention that an inconsistency um, in Jehovah's Witness doctrine is evidence uh, that the New Testament church does not inherit heaven for eternity? Uh, yeah, and I appreciate that question. Um, and I do stand by my argument because uh, inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. Uh, but I'd like to explain again why I believe uh, that to be the case. And it's my position uh, that the great crowd mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 7 is clearly in the New Covenant. And I believe that I adequately demonstrated this to be the case in my opening statement. And uh, the reason why I believe this would successfully deny uh, the debate proposition is because we both agree that the great crowd will live forever on the earth. And if I'm successful in uh, demonstrating that they are also likewise in the new covenant, then the debate proposition will have been successfully denied. Right. Well, actually, you, you don't provide a solution uh, in your second contention because you, you provide um, simply a um, a a, um, a question, uh, you know, saying that that I can't have it both ways. Well, again, that uh, is that. What does that prove? I mean, I could say that for the sake of our uh, of the discussion. That it proves that 
that all Christians go to heaven. That would not that would uh, refute your your point of view. So again, the, the, pointing out an inconsistency or a perceived inconsistency is not proof in either the positive or the uh, or the negative. Okay, Fred, you have a minute to ask question number four. Mike, uh, is it true that there is at least one biblical example of an individual that had faith in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, was forgiven of his sins uh, directly by Jesus Christ, was saved by Jesus Christ, and is not part of Abraham's seed? Uh, no, I, I don't believe there are any examples of individuals who had faith in Christ uh, but was not part of Abraham's seed. So let me emphasize that, or I'll, I'll just say that again just so it's uh, you know clear for the audience. I don't believe there are any examples of individuals uh, who had faith in Christ but was not part of Abraham's seed. Uh, but I believe the question contains an, uh, a misunderstanding of my position. Uh, and that is, it's not my position that all of Abraham's spiritual seed are in the New Covenant. And the reason being, I believe that Abraham's spiritual seed go all the way back to the historical Abraham himself. And this would include the faithful remnant of Israel who were uh, not under uh, the New Covenant administration, but the Old Covenant. Uh, however, I don't think uh, your question presents as much of a problem for me as, I, uh, as it does uh, for you. And the reason being, Excuse me. A text, text like uh, Galatians chapter three verse twenty nine informs us uh, that all who belong to Christ are Abraham's seed or descendants. And since it's your view, uh, which has Abraham's spiritual seed being limited to New Covenant Christians, uh, then you would have to explain why Galatians uh, chapter three verse twenty nine would not apply to those who you agree do not live in heaven, but instead live forever on the new earth. Uh, therefore, if this question was asked of you, uh, then you would have to answer how one could be saved by Jesus Christ, uh, but somehow uh, they're an exception to uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Right, and um, and so as I've been arguing um, that, um, that Abraham's spiritual seed uh, is... Uh, Uniquely associated with the Christian, with, uh, with, uh, with Christian church. And, um, consequently, uh, Abraham's spiritual seed, uh, is, um, um, a part of the church, or, or is part of the church, uh, if you will. Uh, so, um, uh, again, there, there are, um, there are, um, uh, some points that I'll be bringing forth, uh, in, in the coming discussion that will, uh, again, uh, point out why this is significant, uh, that, that, uh, Abraham's spiritual seed is uniquely associated with the new birth and with, uh, the Christian church. So thank you for your answer. Okay. And that brings us to your question number five. Uh, Mike, in, in your opinion, do, do good spirits live in heaven? Uh, yes, um, and because I'm not quite sure of the implications of this question, I will uh, refrain from elaborate, or elaborating, excuse me, and uh, maybe with your uh, rebuttal, um, you could maybe explain where you're getting at with that question. Maybe I could address it more in my uh, next rebuttal. Thank you. Okay. So your answer is yes. Thank you. All right. Uh, question number six. Mike, is it true that, that, uh, there isn't one single scripture, uh, uh, that expressly says that the conscious souls of, uh, 
members of Abraham's spiritual seed will temporarily reside um, in this uh, in a metaphysical location or state, if you will, that, that describe an, an intermediate state um, in a way that can only be understood as, as you believe it to be? Uh, well, no, I, I would not agree with this uh, because it's not that I don't think um, that the relevant text can't be, quote-unquote, understood in uh, different ways uh, because people can understand whatever they want to understand uh, about a particular text. Instead, I would assert that the intermediate state uh, position makes better sense of the relevant text, uh, regardless of whether the intermediate state is expressly stated or not in those specific texts individually. After all, uh, very few doctrines, if any, are found upon one expressly stated scripture. And the intermediate state would be one of those doctrines that I believe are best defended through a cumulative case rather than by one expressly stated text. Uh, But as I mentioned in my opening, uh, you would have to do more than just provide a text which shows Christians uh, living in heaven uh, to some extent. Uh, In addition, uh, you would have to demonstrate that these texts can be best explained by the idea that New Covenant Christians will remain in heaven for all eternity. Okay, thanks, Mike. That's uh, the information that I needed. All right, and Fred, that gives you your final question. Thank you, Chris. Um, Mike, do the heavenly places of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 refer to a metaphysical location or locations in heaven? And please explain. Uh, Thanks, I appreciate that question, Uh, definitely. Um, uh, No, uh, the answer is no to that. For I understand uh, this text to be an already but not yet perspective on our eschatological dwelling place. That is, I believe these heavenly places to be in reference to our eternal dwelling on the new earth. So in order for someone to maintain that these heavenly places are in reference to heaven, you would have to first demonstrate that these heavenly places are in heaven only or exclusively uh, rather than uh, just to assume it. Uh, But I believe I've provided good and sufficient reasons for holding to the notion that for something to be uh, heavenly, uh, one does not necessarily have to go to heaven uh, to experience it. Uh, In addition, I believe it's uh, perfectly consistent and scriptural to assert uh, that the new earth will indeed be a heavenly place. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16 is just one of those texts uh, that I've raised to adequately uh, demonstrate that, in my opinion. Well, uh, the uh, heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 1 does refer to the place that Jesus was resurrected to or ascended to, which, which is heaven. So, um, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to understand how you, you, you say the opposite of that. Uh, but again, perhaps you'll have a chance to explain that, um, in, in our future, um, interactions. Thank you. Well, you've listened to opening statements, first rebuttals, and cross-examination, so please send me your questions for Mike and for Fred at theapologetics at hotmail.com. Next episode will be Steve Gregg versus Dr. Michael Brown on the future of Israel. Until then...